0: Welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. We are speaking here on Thursday, December 15th, 2022. As we approach 2023 in just two weeks, a little hard to believe, there's a lot of discussion about the MTA and its fiscal troubles which were significantly stemmed over the last few years by a massive infusion of federal aid. But that federal aid is drying up and there were problems with the MTA's finances even before the COVID pandemic hit and decimated ridership and thus fare box revenue. While ridership has returned to the subways and buses to some significant degree, We are still well short of pre-COVID levels on the subways and the buses, and that still leaves a very big gap in the MTA's revenue needs for its operating budget. Governor Hochul and legislators also instituted a freeze on the regularly scheduled fare increase in order to help encourage ridership to return, but that also shifted some of the calculations around the MTA's larger budgeting. As a reminder, while New York City has significant influence and responsibility related to the MTA and its subways and buses, it is a state run authority where the governor wields enormous power and has ultimate responsibility. MTA officials have been continuously sounding alarms about the authority's fiscal troubles. They're not the only ones, and leaders at the state and city level are well aware of it. MTA chair and CEO Jano Lieber, nominated to that role by Governor Andrew Cuomo and then by his successor, Governor Hochul, has called on state and city leaders to come up with a new funding model That treats the MTA more like a core state service and not more like a separate semi-autonomous authority. That would mean factoring the MTA more into the state budget and even the city budget in New York City, like other core services like education aid and public safety and so on. My guest today has a new plan to do just that and more related to the MTA. I'll be joined in just a moment by Assembly Member Zoran Mamdani of Queens. He represents the 36th Assembly District and its neighborhoods of Astoria, Dittmar Steinway, and Astoria Heights. Previously, he was a foreclosure prevention housing counselor, and he's the first South Asian man and first Ugandan to serve in the New York State Assembly. He is a Democrat and a Democratic Socialist, one of the several state legislators in the Assembly and Senate, backed by the Democratic Socialists of America, New York chapters. And to win his seat in 2020, he defeated an incumbent in the Democratic primary, part of a wave of Democratic Socialists and further left progressives who have won seats in Western Queens and parts of Brooklyn and a couple other places in the state over the last several election cycles. Assemblymember Mamdani and several colleagues Crucially, including Senate Deputy Leader Michael Janaris, also of Queens, as well as advocates, unveiled a plan on Wednesday, the day before we're talking here on December 14th, to, quote unquote, fix the MTA. The package includes, according to a press release from Mamdani's office, a spending bill to fill the MTA's operating deficit, reject a fare hike, fund more frequent service and make buses free over a few year period. Plus, there are several bills in the package to increase efficiency, accountability, and funding security for the MTA. We're going to get into the details of that plan and the political and fiscal dynamics around it, as well as a few other topics here with New York State Assembly members Zoran Mamdani in just a moment. First, very briefly, if you've missed any recent episodes of the show, since the conclusion of the... Very important 2022 elections here in New York. We've had a series of episodes breaking down the results with a variety of insightful guests. You can find all those at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site. After that series of conversations breaking down the election results in the last few episodes here, before this one, we've been refocusing on some policy and looking ahead to 2023. So I spoke in recent weeks with Queensborough President Donovan Richards about a whole lot of topics of what's happening in Queens and what's coming up next. Then City Council Member Shekar Krishnan, also of Queens. It's been quite a Queen streak here. Uh, but talking with Council Member Krishnan about uh, his work chairing the City Council's Parks Committee, so a big focus on parks and other public spaces in that episode, And even before those, the the Queen streak began with Assemblymember Ron Kim. That was more talking about Asian-American voters and some of their move from uh, Democrats to Republicans in recent election cycles and so forth. So some great episodes recently, a lot of Queens action here, which I'm enjoying since I'm a native of the borough uh, living in Brooklyn now, but grew up in Queens in the Whitestone and Flushing areas myself and then also, before we bring on Assemblymember Mondani, I will note, uh, along with this discussion, the other new episode here, brand new coming out, is with former Deputy Mayor of New York City, Dan Doctorov who is just a co-chair of the new New York panel assembled by Governor Hochul and Mayor Adams to chart some of the city's future uh, economically and on housing and central business districts and so forth. So, we just got into the recommendations and the action plan from the new New York panel. So, you can find that discussion as well. Find any or all of those at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site. And of course, at GothamGazette.com, you can also find, even more importantly than all these podcast chats, you can find all of our reporting on New York City and state policy and politics. All right. Assembly member Zoran Mamdani of Queens is here. He represents the 36th Assembly District centered in Astoria. And he was a foreclosure prevention housing counselor before being elected to the assembly in the 2020 elections. He's a Democrat, a Democratic Socialist, and he and his colleagues have a new plan to fix the MTA. Assembly member Mamdani, thank you for joining me. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I am
1: I am doing well. I'm doing well. I'm very excited about, about our plan, and I'm very excited about what the next five and six months hold.
0: All right. Well, we are talking here on December 15th. You announced the plan on the 14th, and now you've got... Uh, a flurry of of press coverage here and uh, discussions on this show and others about what's in the plan. And you've got a few weeks to really build more and more support uh, leading into the start of the legislative session. And then, of course, you've got time in the new year as well before the state budget is due in April to to get some victories here in this agenda. So let's talk about the agenda. Um, you want to freeze The fare, where it's at at 275, you want six-minute train service around the clock. Uh, What are some other planks here in this this agenda? What do you want to promise to New Yorkers that you can get done if all of this passes and you can secure the billions of dollars in funding that it requires?
1: Absolutely. So first and foremost, this is a package that we've titled Fix the MTA. It's comprised of eight bills. Seven of those bills are programmatic, and what I mean by that is they do not have immediate fiscal implications. The eighth bill, which is what the package is built around, is a spending bill. So it has fiscal implications, and the success of that bill will be determined on the inclusion of its primary objectives in the state budget, which is due on April 1st. Um, That bill, which I am so excited to uh, be working with Senator Gianaris on. He's going to be carrying it in the Senate. Calls for an average of about three and a quarter billion dollars of spending into the MTA um, every year over a four-year period. And that bill we've titled it the the Formula Three Act. And and what that stands for is that it will freeze fares, as you said. It will fund frequency, so six-minute headways for subways. Um, you know, 17 hours every day, um, six minutes or better, and it will increase bus service by 20% across the system. And then it will phase in free buses over the next four years. And that phase in will begin with the Bronx, um, and then it will go into Brooklyn in the second year, Queens in the third, and Manhattan and Staten Island in the fourth. And the rationale of that phase in and the sequencing of it is from a study that was done around median household incomes, poverty rates, share of commuters, and, and bus ridership across each borough.
0: Now, um, since we're getting into the the fiscal impact and that that major uh, part of the package here that you put forward, do you have um, set out ways to uh, gain the the revenue needed there? or is it a, or is it calling for that to be just fig- figured out and factored into the state budget, which for this current fiscal year is is above 220 billion dollars? We'll see you know what revenues and such look like for next fiscal year, but w- do you have a, a funding plan or is it um, to be determined?
1: We haven't outlined the specific source of funding. And what I would say to that question is both, if you look at the current budget of $222 billion that we passed last year, um, this would comprise 1.5% of that in terms of what what this package would demand in, in immediate spending on an annual basis. And I say that to say that it is eminently possible to fund this package within the current constraints. But yet we must also understand that this budget does not represent the totality of revenue that is available to the state. Um, and right now there is a push by the Invest in Our New York Coalition, a coalition which won $4.3 billion in new annual revenues two years ago when I first came into the assembly. Um, And they are now calling for more than $40 billion in additional revenues. And so I do believe that in those revenues that they have outlined across um, five or six different bills, they make it very clear that we are far from implementing a fair and progressive tax system here in New York state. And if we were to do so, whether with a specific focus on personal income tax or uh, an heirs tax or a corporate tax, any any which one of those bills that's part of that platform, you could vastly increase the amount of revenue available to the state. So that is a, a two-part answer to your question. Mm-hmm. And I think what I would also say is that, you know, with, with the MTA, we know this is a conversation that has to happen this year. We have to intervene because the MTA is foreseeing you know, more than $2.5 billion in an in operating budget deficit. And as you said, the federal COVID-19 relief money is running out. I would argue the same thing for taxation, especially because the corporate taxes that we passed two years ago in in 2021, what will be two years ago when we get to this next budget, those corporate taxes are also sunsetting this year. So we have to either reinstate them at their current levels, allow them to sunset completely, or what I would argue is the best approach is raise those taxes commensurate to our belief of what corporations owe the people of New York.
0: Hmm. Um, The... I'm not. I'm not sure if you have any sense of if there is discussion of any additional federal money coming towards the MTA. There's obviously discussion right now about whether Democrats in Washington, while they still have the House, the Senate, and the presidency here for a couple more weeks, will pass a you know a budget bill, a continuing resolution. Um, and any sense that there might be some some federal money there for the MTA? <laughs>
1: I don't have a sense of that right now, and I think that it's critical for us in, you know, as you said in your introduction, this is a state authority. While we absolutely desperately need more funding from the federal government, I think that we have to plan as state legislators for the scenario that we are presented in right now, which is the fiscal cliff that exists. If there is any additional federal funding, that would be fantastic. I would very much welcome that, as I think many New Yorkers would. But I think it's important that, that we plan in this next next budget cycle looking at the numbers that exist at this moment mm-hmm.
0: um so you're talking about you know the MTA looking at a billion up to two three billion you know over the coming years in terms of projected deficits and you're talking about plugging that gap and then adding additional revenue in to cover some of these other um moves that you want to make as you mentioned um why? why free buses say a little bit more about that. Obviously the idea of free public transit appeals to many people in the sense of, Hey, we have a lot of free public stuff, right? I mean, you don't have to pay to enter a a public park. You don't, you know, it's all comes through tax, the tax base, you know, for free public schools and and things of that nature. Um, But the way that Things have been set up and and longstanding funding mechanisms, you know, fares uh, support a lot of the MTA's function. And then you're also getting into a situation here, aren't you? If you um if you make buses free, people who can fairly, you know, afford to pay, you're sort of um Leaving that money on the table, so to speak, while we do have a fair fares program for lower income riders to get half price metro cards, say a little bit about sort of the decision making process behind going for this as a goal for for free buses
1: absolutely so I think that you know to make it very clear, the push for free buses, the inclusion of it in our package, is driven by the tangible benefits that it would bring to New Yorkers across the five boroughs. And I say that to say, obviously, I fully agree with it ideologically. This is something that I also ran on. But it is not simply a case of, are you a socialist? Then this is this is the entire audience of this package. The audience of of what we are fighting for here are people, are New Yorkers who use the bus, who use the train. Now, let me speak in in specificity around around the reasoning and, and what the impact will be one of the reasons that we are we are fighting for free buses is because it's critical that we provide relief for working class new Yorkers from the way in which inflation is crushing them right we're looking at i think we're at about 7% at this time and new york city when compared to other regions across the state has the highest level of unemployment 5.3% and no other region even comes past 3%. so we are disproportionately facing this Pandemic-induced crisis of employment. And what we have found time and again is that if you provide relief at the fare box, what you will see is that you provide you are providing relief to a ridership that is disproportionately working class and of color, many of whom often have no alternative to taking the bus while creating universal transit access. Now, in addition to that, which I would also say, you know, in the midst of this pandemic, last year in the assembly. We and, and in the Senate and you know signed off by the governor, um, created a fund of of five hundred million dollars to waive the gas tax. And the rationale there was that gas prices are too high and that people deserve relief at the at, at the pump. And what I would argue is that You know, bus riders, on average, are even more working class than car owners, and yet we are not thinking about this in the correct way, which is that they require that same kind of relief. And this is such an easy way to provide that relief. Easy, not in the sense of the political battle that will be required to pass this, but easy in the sense that if you pass this and you fund this, then you do not then worry about implementation. You do not then worry about application, things of that nature. It is very Simple for the MTA to implement this, and that is a major contrast with programs like the one you mentioned, Fair Fares. So, Fair Fares is a system set up to ensure that um, you know the neediest New Yorkers are provided with subsidy and assistance to ensure that they can afford our transit system. But in 2021, 48 percent of eligible New Yorkers hadn't applied for the Fair Fares pro- program. I mean, that's, that's half of New Yorkers who this is geared towards assisting had not actually taken advantage of this. And 15, 14% had no idea how to even apply. And so that's often what happens when you create programs that are means tested in an attempt to assist a specific population. What we need to do is create universal public goods, universal in the sense of who can access them and in the sense of who can afford them. And that's what this does. In addition to that, Mm -hmm. creating a free bus program over four years would also ensure that our buses are safer and that our buses are faster and safer in the sense that I've spoken to many, a bus operator who has talked to me about rider interactions around the fare box. They have said are the number one driving factor for tension, for potential violence and assault on a bus operator. Mm -hmm. And If you remove that, if you remove the need of that interaction around fare collection, then you create greater safety for those operators. So often we view the means by which to create safety is just to increase the penalty of that violence. But I really do not believe that somebody who could face 10 years for assaulting someone will take that action. But if it's 12 or 15 years, then they'll think twice. Really, what we have to do is address the root cause of that, and this also does that. It creates greater safety on these buses, and it also creates that safety by increasing ridership on that very bus. Because you know that safety, both as it is truly experienced and then also as it is perceived is tied to how isolated and alone you are in in a moment, specifically around public transit. So if you have full buses, you have safer buses for riders, you have safer buses for operators. And then in terms of faster, you can see in in, um, Boston's pilot run of of free buses on three different lines, that they were able to eliminate 20% of dwell time at stations because of the lack of fare collection. And here in New York City, there's been a constant back and forth at the MTA about enabling all-door access uh, for for buses. And there's been this pushback around that because by doing so, you further inhibit the MTA's ability to collect uh, fares. And so if you don't enable all-door access, you have slower buses. And so by moving fares as a factor in all of this, then you take away the MTA's rationale. You address their rationale, rather, for not enabling it. And then all of a sudden, you have buses that can board at every single door. You have buses that are not having individuals wait to either swipe their Omni, to swipe their MetroCard or or connect their Omni to the screen. You just have people boarding and leaving Oh. and and you address a number of these factors all at once
0: in a in a similar vein. um I've seen a little bit of commentary about sh- some of the warnings around moving to free buses when you're not doing that with the subways and so you're sort of um a potentially moving m- moving some riders to buses who would otherwise maybe take a subway if they you know go similar routes and that's that's you know buses are less efficient um uh, than than subways and that's a little bit of a concern and then that you're also creating something of a more even more sort of socioeconomic stratified situation where people of lesser means will opt for the bus even if it's slower than the subway because they wouldn't have to pay any concerns on either of those sides of the equation why not why not go for uh free subways uh maybe you know uh, uh, entry points in certain, you know, certain entry points in the Bronx or something like that but instead of the buses?
1: Well, you know, I think what you need to have is something that is simple, easily understood, and universally accessible. Um, so often you see ads you know, that proclaim universal access. And then the fine print is right beneath. Like you can see that around tuition in the subway stations um, where it's like free tuition. And then underneath it's like, you know, for all who are eligible. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that if you create that confusion of it's, it's a specific route um, or it's a specific entryway, I think it, it breeds for the failure of the program. And so often what we have seen is that it's one thing to come up with a vision for, for, legislative action. It's another thing to win that battle. And then it's another thing to actually enact it as was intended. You can see that very clearly with the fight around ERAP and how when Andrew Cuomo was the governor, we had an absolute trickle of funding. And that's putting it generously coming out of that program to tenants who are in desperate need. But then when we did not have Andrew Cuomo as the governor, and when Kathy Hochul became the governor initially, that money came right out the door, and that speaks to the issues of enactment. So a bit of a tangent, but, but just to say, um, I think I, I don't really have too many concerns around a, a massive shift of ridership from subways to buses. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people who use the bus are also they do not have an, an alternative to the bus. Um, they are using the bus because it has a unique network that it allows them to get around. Um, and, and I think that that will continue to be the case. I also, you know, w- would say that in, in terms of creating like a, a stratified system of, of transit, we already have that in this moment right now. And you can see that in terms of disproportionately working class people at a great, greater rate. Like I've I've seen, I've heard estimates of around, you know, bus riders making on average $30,000 a year. Um, if you are trying to ensure that you are providing relief to the New Yorkers who need it most in a time of crushing inflation, the bus is the most obvious place to start that. And that is th- this, this program is about all of these different things where you remove fares, you make the bus faster, you remove fares, you make the bus safer, you remove fares, you make the bus universally accessible. All of those things do not apply to subways in the same way at this time. Um, Now, that's not to say I wouldn't welcome that in the future, but in this moment of urgency and immediacy, this is this is what makes the most sense. And I think that that's something that I've been trying to convey to people is that this isn't just a wish list come to come to life. This is a set of demands. These are a set of demands that are born out of the moment that we're in right now.
0: Mm -hmm. How significant in terms of getting real here on the politics, how significant is it to have Senator Janaris, the deputy leader of the Senate? Um, you know, as your Senate Senate counterpart on this, um, he obviously doesn't get to simply decide what his conference um, in the Senate passes, but uh, he's got a lot of heft. He's got a lot of say. What's the significance there? And, and what do you think about um, both that and your sort of receptivity in the assembly among your colleagues in the Democratic majority in your house? I think it conveys a lot
1: of seriousness about this package. I am so excited to be working with him on this. This is something that, you know, the two of us in our offices have been working on for for some time now. And I think what's, you know, when he told me that he, he was going to carry this bill in the Senate, what I felt in that moment was the understanding that this will now be understood for what it is, which is a serious plan that will transform our city's public transit. So often when you have plans that have any ambition, they are written off as naive, they're written off as idealistic. The beautiful thing about working with someone like Senator Ginaris is those are not the characteristics that are associated with him. When people think of him and the fact that he's the deputy majority leader of the state Senate Democrats, they think of somebody who is serious somebody who's determined and somebody who has a track record of results um, you know yesterday we launched this we launched the formula 3 act within the fix the MTA package and today the governor is going to be you know signing his bill on on ending puppy mills and I think that it's it speaks to the results that, that he's able to achieve and, and I'm very excited about adding to that list with with this package I think you know in terms of, of the assembly and and, and my conference, Um, as well as other members of the Senate. This is not the Zahran Mandani presents Fix the MTA show. This is a package that unites so many different legislators. And, you know, if you just go through the individuals who are carrying the eight bills, right, we have Alicia Heinemann and Liz Kruger carrying a bill on bus lane enforcement to actually enable buses to go faster and be more reliable by empowering the MTA to um, to have its program, which they've titled Able, to to tackle the issue of cars that are are sitting in the lanes that buses use. We have utility relocation, which will speed up the MTA's construction processes and its um, and its capital timelines. I'm holding that in the Assembly. Leroy Comrie, the chair of the Corporations Committee, which the MTA falls under, is holding that in the Senate. We have accountability bills, you know, that are that are held by Bobby Carroll in the Assembly, Jessica Ramos. Uh, labor chair and the senate and that's a bill that would you know mandate and require the mta to provide a, a wide list of, of information on its capital dashboard um, in terms of timeline and what the project is related to in terms of accessibility or resiliency the sourcing of funding things of that nature you have andrew granardis who has been doing such immense work around the mta carrying a bill with jeff dinowitz who is a senior leader in our conference on the assembly side to ensure that riders finally have vote. The MTA board that we add four mm-hmm. new voting members um, to the board, you have, again, Bobby Carroll and then um, Chair Leroy Comrie carrying a bill to end the requirement that the authorities budget office, a critical oversight body for the MTA, is re- required to pay its own fringe benefits and overhead, which is unique among state agencies, ending that would allow them in their words, to supercharge their capacity to provide oversight, hiring 10 additional full-time employees. You have, again, Andrew Ganardis. So, and sorry, <laughs> <yeah>. keep going.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. I, we, 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 we got a feel for the fact that you have a lot of colleagues on the different bills. So this is not just your show. I, I appreciate <laughs> that. Um you get at something important here, and I understand you have a, you have some focus here on sort of uh, MTA accountability, efficiency, but one of the big critiques of the MTA and questions around MTA funding is throwing more money at an authority that has become um, a model of sort of dysfunctional and unable to efficiently spend money and um, full of of scandal uh you know there's a few years ago a, a big new york times expose that you know uncovered some new things but also just really put together a lot of things that people already knew about how the MTA lets contractors um you know get away with an incredible amount of overcharging and and you know a lot of that is on the capital side but but there's major inefficiencies on the operating side as well and i think that's one of the big questions some people would have about this you know this push and this package is where's the sort of efficiency accountability side of making sure that public money here is being spent as best possible and it's not just more sort of bailouts for an authority that is deeply um inefficient and poorly run.
1: Yeah, I think that what what I would say to to those concerns which I fully understand is that this package does so in in through a number of specific bills, but also I think if, if we get into the details first around the spending bill. In this spending bill, what we outline within it is that if we secure this funding for the MTA, then the MTA will be required to pay level debt service um, in any of its new bonds that it issues. And we've put an exception there for expansion projects, um, but that's an exception that would only be granted if the MTA put a, forth a proposal for approval to the, the Office of the State Controller um, that the project actually qualifies for an expansion project. And I just want to go into this a little bit specifically, but feel free to cut me off if I, if <laughs> yeah, I, go, ahead. If I go the way that I did last time. That's okay. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the issues has been in the past that the MTA has issued bonds that do not require it to pay any debt service for years 1 through 10 even and then all of a sudden in year 11 you have a, a serious amount of money that you have to pay and then all of a sudden we have the narrative reemerge once more that the MTA is in crisis hmm. and what we are doing here is not just filling the deficit what we are, we are not just funding New initiatives that will transform the experience of New Yorkers when using their transit system. We're also changing the conditions and adding additional requirements so as to promote fiscal prudence of the authority. And ensuring that any new bonds be issued with level debt service, I think, is a critical way which we... Continue to have an accurate representation of what the finances are at the MTA, so we don't sit through ten years of thinking that things are fine because all the numbers seem to add up, and then in year eleven there's this balloon payment that we didn't really see because for ten years it was just adding up in silence, hidden away. Um, So you know that is that is a part of this. I think the other thing that I would say is that you know this is a package that if you pass this package, we're not coming back next year for anything additional. And, and that is why within this package, there is money that's allocated also for what we see as the MTA being overly optimistic. Now, I would say that you know Andrew Cuomo's Albany, which we thankfully, thankfully don't live in anymore, it, in, it created an incentive where you would promote an overly healthy picture sometimes so as to put off when the crisis was at hand. What we need to do now in planning for the future is be realistic. And so there are two places in our spending bill and the the Formula Three Act that we differ from the MTA. Namely, they are accounting for retaining 80% of pre-pandemic ridership. They're using the midpoint of um, a study that McKinsey was commissioned to do around what ridership recovery would look like. They're using the midpoint of 80%. We are saying we should use the low point of 73% that McKinsey has provided. And part of the rationale there is that McKinsey has done a report prior to this, they did not foresee the rise of Omicron, and that number that they had said was was likely was completely missed. Now, here we have another one. It behooves us, if we're trying to be fiscally prudent, to actually plan for the worst-case scenario so that we don't budget for a good scenario and then have to come back next year or the year after and be like, yeah, you know what? I'm sorry. We don't have enough money for what we thought we needed. The second thing is that the MTA in their, um, in their financials only allocates for a 2% raise for unions. And what we found in our analysis of the last, you know, 10 to 20 years of, of union contract renegotiations, as well as inflation, is that the two things are very much tied together and the contracts are renegotiated with the view to match, if not go above what the cost of inflation has been. And the MTA itself is, is assessing that inflation will be 5% for 2023. And then it says it'll go back down to, to 2%, which is a revision because they initially didn't say that it would be 5% next year. They said it would just be 2 Across the board, and so what we've done is we've allocated for an additional 150 million dollars a year, so that the union allocation is at least, at the very minimum, in line with what it has cost in the past. This is not to say this is the ceiling, but this is to say that the MTA, to be prudent, must at least be prepared for what history has shown us as the least possible raise that that could be mm-hmm. granted in negotiations, which is 3.5 percent. Then I think to the other points around, you know, accountability and oversight. I think that so often we find an addiction to creating new programs, to creating new agencies, new boards as a means of promoting accountability and efficiency. I think oftentimes what we actually need to do is properly fund the ones that exist. Because so often they have actually been set up to satisfy a rhetorical need as opposed to an actual plan for them to to implement them as as their mission statement Puts forward, and I think the authority's budget office is one, is one example of that. And as I was saying earlier, is one of our bills ends the overhead on the authority's budget office. That would mean that they could hire ten more people to follow up on complaints and concerns that they have received around the MTA, and so that adds additional oversight. Right. I think that having riders who can actually vote who are not, you know, nominated by the governor or nominated by the mayor or nominated by the executive of, of an MTA county, but rather there with the explicit intention of representing riders, I think that that changes the nature of the bird in that you have a different conversation taking place that has actual political
0: consequence because these riders have votes. I think that, you know, that. sorry. Yeah, no, I, was, I mean, please say what you're going to say. I'll just quickly say, you know, I think you know you hit on something in terms of union contract negotiations where um you know there there there's even fairly progressive people who you know think that um you know there's there's a lot of room for negotiating in those contracts for creating more efficiency not necessarily to um you know to cut personnel uh but but ways to create more efficiency that could potentially increase uh, service, um, you know, the, I mean, you're you're getting at some of the issues around accountability and questions. I think there's people out there who, um, you know, would also want to see the legislature take a take a more active role in oversight of you know the MTA and really mm-hmm. insisting on more you know accountability, especially if there's more state money you know being directed to to the operating budget.
1: I I fully agree with that. I mean, I've I can tell you now I've I put in my request to be on the corporations committee, um, and and I and I hope to be there uh, yeah. because I think that those hearings and and those committee meetings are a critical forum to 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 ensure that the that the authority is accountable. Um, and you know, I I think. I am not in any way interested in downplaying concerns around accountability and efficiency. Those are real. Those have historical grounding as to why people feel that way. I myself am one of those people. What this package seeks to do is address those through a means of, you know, a number of legislative initiatives and also qualifi- qualifications that we put on the spending bill. Just one one other thing I would say, Ben, is that, yeah. um, you know, the the focus of our package is around the operating. Budget and the shortfall and the possibilities within it, um, but one of our bills is also about uh, utility relocation. Which, at its core, what it would do is to ensure that when the MTA is, you know, has capital construction, which is a source of a lot of the the, the concerns around accountability, is that we can actually take away some of the obstacles to efficiency of the timeline which have been Con Ed, which have been Verizon, you know, corporations who will say that actually in order for you to do that, then I also need you to replace these 100-year-old facilities or, or pieces of infrastructure that we have within the tunnels. And until you do that, then we won't give you the permission to, to, to build or, or augment any of your own infrastructure. And this would then change the prioritization, the relationship between the MTA and those kinds of companies and say that actually... The utilities should not impede these timelines. They should be required to help move them along. And it would mandate them to perform work that the MTA assesses is required on a reasonable schedule. And I think that it, you know, are there more things to address beyond these eight bills? Yes, absolutely. But I think the importance of this package comes back to the fact that if we were to pass all eight bills, we would see a true transformation of this authority, not the one that we have today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously, uh, part part of doing my role here, I'm you know I'm sort of pushing on some of the things. There's there's uh, you know obviously um, you know some real we haven't spent a lot of time on on uh, some of the more attractive parts of increasing you know subway uh, frequency and service and and off peak service and some of the things that people seem to be clamoring for and and those are sort of almost you know the the obvious top goods here along with um, you know the the impact that free bus. Uh, service would have on on many riders. Um, I, I, I want to ask you a few other things in our last you know few minutes here. Um, just quickly on this package before I move on to a couple other quick things. Is, is there a way to to promise people a, a, a legislative hearing on this package? Is there any way you can assure people? I mean, one of the things that, you know, as a as a journalist focused on Albany is, you know, often a lot of this stuff gets proposed, it gets debated, it gets negotiated, and there's never a big, you know, a public, real public discussion of it. Ben, I'm, I'm sorry, I missed the early question. Oh, I'm sorry. Is there any way for you to sort of promise people that there'll be a hearing on this package, like a real legislative hearing where people, you know, experts testify and impacted individuals testify. And you can really, you know, lay things out for the media to cover and people to participate in. Is there any way to, to make sure that that happens?
1: So I, I can't sit here and give you a guarantee that the legislature will do anything of the, of that nature. But what I can tell you is that our plan in this campaign is very much tied not only to public awareness public education public engagement but also agitation and the organizing that we do in you know it's been about 24 hours a little over 24 hours since we have launched this campaign 200 people have already signed up to to organize for this and Mm -hmm. you know i think too often we think of politics as something that happens within um you know the assembly or the state senate you know far off in, in albany um, but really, what politics should be at its best is the deliverance of the, the 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 needs of working class people, and you cannot you cannot deliver transformative legislation like this if you do not have working class people at the center of the fight for it. And so, if anyone listening is interested in in, in winning these, you know the 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 many different proposals that we have in this package, some of which Ben also just spoke about, then I would say go to fixthemta.org and sign up to get involved because we are going to be canvassing subway stations. We are going to be standing at bus stations. We are going to be so ever present across the city in in our push for this package, because we understand that the only way we can make an MTA that works for New York City is if we get New Yorkers front and center in that demand and organizing with their neighbors.
0: All right. I'm going to ask you one other question on politics. There's a lot of stuff um, that we'll get to another time. I know you're you're involved today in the um, housing justice for all platform launch ahead of the next legislative session. Um, You mentioned the invest in our New York package of, of tax increases and and programs that that Package would fund as well that you're you're involved with and supportive of Um, not going to get into all those details because I need to let you go here after our robust discussion of this MTA package. But let me ask you on the political side, um, as a as a Democratic Socialist who's been elected in this in this Democratic Socialist hotbed area of of Western Queens, and you've seen the growth of your uh, caucus and like minded progressives in many parts of the city. What do you make of what just happened in southern Brooklyn and what do you make of you know some of the democratic losses in certain parts of the city and the suburbs um it 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 seems to me that um you know in some of these areas that are are not democratic strongholds but have more purple to them um you know that, that there's some real challenges for democrats to explain themselves um relative to how sort of some of the left wing of the party is is portrayed as sort of running the party in areas of the city where that's not necessarily as popular of a sort of ideology and a policy platform how are you, are, are you how have you taken stock of some of those democratic losses in southern brooklyn and elsewhere and and also just how well Lee Zeldin did in the election um, overall how are you thinking about that and how sort of the the left of the party and the and the moderate you know wing, so to speak, of the party need to, you know, figure out how to sort of coexist better?
1: You know, I think I have a number of thoughts about this. And so again, always cut me I go too long on this, but go ahead. Um, I think you know one thing is that a number of the places that that we had losses um, in southern Brooklyn, these are areas which were already voting for Trump in 2020. This is not the this is not something that occurred for the first time in this moment. These are areas that voted for Trump. These are areas that that went more for Curtis Sliwa in the mayoral election. The ingredients for what happened this past November have been plain for all to see. Now the frustration is that. Even though those were all publicly available results, there was not a lot of the time the mobilization required to fight them off or or to invest in, in campaign operations that would reckon with that. I can give an example specifically, not in southern Brooklyn, but here actually in western Queens, which is that, you know, the governor... I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. Then had about forty million dollars in in, in uh, campaign donations
0: um, and spending. Oh, even more than that, yeah, more than more, that. more more like fifty. But yeah, go ahead. Okay, <laughs> you know, not too far away from funding three buses. Um, 50, 50
1: million dollars, let's say. Um, I was speaking to to staff on that campaign staff who I knew were not making the final decisions, but there was this concern around we have to get turnout going. We have we have to you know, we have to fight back against this, the possibility of this red wave. And so I said, you know, here are a number of things I think you should do. You have a state assembly candidate on Long Island running against Gina Sillidi, who has said horrific things about Muslims, about Sikhs, horrific, horrific things, things of the nature of, you know, Muslims exist on this earth only to kill Hindus, things of that nature. Um, You have Lee Zeldin, who has said, You know, horrific Islamophobic things while being a congressman who has put together hearings on the radicalization of Muslims. Um, I have built a list of Muslim voters in my district. I can give you that list. You can create a digital ad that could go up tomorrow and you could just highlight the words of these individuals. No interest. I Mm -hmm. decided to just, you know, one of the things that I would do is I would just go to the mosques myself. Um, I got literature from the Working Families Party, which was the only institution that sent me a mailer in the entirety of, of the general election. And I went to the mosque and I got up in front of the congregants and I, and I spoke about Lee Zeldin's record and I spoke about this candidate on Long Island and I spoke about the Republican Party and their plans for Albany and how there was no room for Muslims in those plans. And then when I got out of the, the mosque um, people you know, responded very positively and, and, and took palm cards and told me about their plans to vote. And one uncle pulled me aside and he said, brother, I have deep respect for you, but you've said all these things that, that Lee Zeldin has to say about Muslims, but what has Kathy Hochul done for Muslims? And I struggled in that moment because that's been one of my main critiques is how certain communities have been locked out and have been spoken to you know, in in the way that politicians will go to certain community events, they will crib together a couple words of a language that is associated with that community. And they will say that we love you. And and then they will leave. And, you know, I'm a South Asian, I'm a Muslim New Yorker. And I've seen um, firsthand, like, even the most basic thing, right? Eric Adams said he was going to give South Asians Diwali on the first day he was in office he still hasn't given it to us. And now his plan is as a school stay. holiday. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. The that, that, that yeah. Diwali should be a school holiday. Mm-hmm. And now he said that actually, you know, who's going to fix it as Albany. And it's in many ways reminiscent of his, of, of so much of his issues where he says that, you know, the issue actually is in Albany. If it's crime, it's in Albany. If it's Diwali, it's in Albany. And the funny thing was is that he was in Albany for so much time. He came back to New York city and now all the issues actually are up in Albany. But it's, it's just that even the most basic things have not been given. And then when you ask for community-specific plans as to addressing people's needs and wants, you come up with nothing. You are not given anything. And when I proposed you know, some of these ideas of how you could reach out to certain communities, there was no interest in that. So I would say it's a combination of something that has been coming for the last few years and an inability to mobilize against it. It is another factor is just the, the lack of desire to engage in even basic campaign work Um, And, you know, when I ran, even though I walk around like I won in a landslide, I won by 424 votes. And we always knew it was going to be close to go up against a 10-year incumbent who would outspend us two and a half to one. And one of the things that I did is I built this list of Muslim voters by doing first and last name analysis of the voters in my district. I built a list of South Asian voters, which included these Muslim voters and then obviously other South Asians who are not Muslim. And we sent mailers to people in multiple languages, Bengali, Urdu, Arabic, Punjabi, Nepali right? We went through so many languages and we spoke about the issues that disproportionately impact South Asians. I sent a mailer saying that when elected, I would end excessive medallion debt. I was wrong in that I thought I would do it in Albany, but I was part of the fight, leading the fight on the elected side that was led entirely by the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, where we won a landmark debt relief program from the city that has now erased more than $315 million. But So often the executives of our of of our cities and our states, the heads of our party, they're more interested in defeating the left than they are in actually adequately responding to the needs of New Yorkers. Jay Jacobs spent more money trying to defeat Jabari Brisport in a state Senate primary. He maxed out individually than he did in the party's coffers of spending on a referendum item that would have truly transformed the ability for New York to draw a map more favorable to Democrats. It just speaks to where the focus is. And what's so scary is that this incompetence, this lack of interest, it is all occurring while the Republican Party has a vision of fascism that they want to implement on this country. And the person who's there on the front lines of that battle is Jay Jacobs. It 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 sounds like a comedy, but it's a horror movie.
0: Mm. Um, all right. I knew I should have saved more time for us to talk politics. <laughs> let, let me follow up with one quick thing and then I'll let you go. Yeah. It, you know it strikes me watching all this unfold you know very closely that all of your points there are are are, are well taken i think i mean I, maybe i didn't catch some that i might take issue with but um but and and i think some of what you talked about in terms of outreach to communities clearly was at also at play in what happened in southern brooklyn right in terms of uh asian american communities yeah. um, or other communities not feeling heard not being uh uh, visited and spoken with, and and really, you know, seeing um, the governor on the ground and 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 policy and and, and other things. But on this on this sort of um, point you make about Jay Jacobs and the and the sort of party establishment and and def- and the left, you know, it strikes me that. And your your primary being a case in point, um, you know, to some extent, Jabari Brisport's original race being a case in point. um,
1: Although, Ben, I would I would just interrupt that Jabari won by a landslide
0: where I no, no, no. But yeah, that's not the point. That's not his race was 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 for an open seat. So it's different. But my point is more you have a lot of people on the left, whether Democratic socialists or not, um, who are who are trying to unseat. More moderate or centrist or conservative Democrats, right? I mean, it's it's not like, um, you know, it's not like it's a one way uh, firing squad here, right? I mean, this is going both ways. So when you know some in the establishment of the center are interested in defeating, you know, uh, more progressive legislators, you know that that that's going both ways, right? It's it's much more a question of sort of what's happening after the primaries, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that.
0: It's a question of what happens after the primaries, but
1: I also think that you know it, it's, um, it is just astounding that there is far more energy, effort, and concern around trying to defeat a proponent of universal childcare than trying to defeat somebody who would wipe entire subway lines off the MTA and reverse the Reproductive Health Act. And that's, I think that, that you know, I, I take your point that, you know, the left definitely we have um, we, ha- we have and continue to and will be fighting against the center in terms of arguing for what is the true what should the true vision be of the Democratic Party and who should its messengers be. But I think that it's that there's an argument to have if the party or the leaders of the party were spending equal amounts of resources and concern on both issues but what we have seen is just a mismatch of interest and engagement in that nature. And that's, what's really concerning to me. And I think the other thing is that, you know, there is, there is agreement around certain things in the democratic party. And yet it's like, sometimes when you read the New York times and you'd be like the far left and the far right, and there's this equivocation of the two things. It's like, what does the far left want to do? They want to make buses free. And what does the far right want to do? They want to eliminate entire races from this country. And there's that equivocation. And then even in spite of that equivocation, there's still more effort, energy, money being spent on defeating the left. And so I think that's that's what's of immense frustration to me, where one is a battle that is within the Democratic Party. And then as the Democratic Party, you know, there is no, there is no reckoning with the seriousness of of what's going on here. And, And I think what's so frustrating is that people are making a shit ton of money off of this. They're making a lot of money off of incompetence. We've gotten lucky in this past general election, but no Democrat should be an incumbent should be winning a reelection statewide by just five or six points. I mean, it's,
0: and the fact that then there's going to be a win bonus for the campaign. I mean, Hmm. uh, we should have a whole other. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, um, uh, plenty more to discuss when we catch up in 2023, obviously. um, But thanks for all the time here on this. We'll be closely watching what happens with your Fix the MTA package and and how that uh, effort to create a movement behind that unfolds. Thank you for all the times. Zoram Mamdani is a Assembly member from Queens, representing the thirty sixth district. Thanks for the time. Uh, be well the the rest of this year and uh, and catch up in in the new year. Absolutely, um, this was this was a lovely conversation. I'm, I'd be more than happy to come back to talk whatever it is you'd be interested in. Sounds good. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it.